That's improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, I'm Jimmy Corain, and this is Improv Nerd, and we have a great show for you today from the Second City Main Stage and Improv Shakespeare Company, Steve Waltine. But before we get started, um, my wife and I are thinking about adopting a kitten, uh, and for me, it's really practice to having kids, which terrifies me. It just it scares me. Uh, our friends of ours have a, a kitten. They actually have uh, two cats, and they have two kids, and so they want to get rid of the smaller cat, the kitten, that's what a smaller cat is, is a kitten. And the kids uh, are really mean to the kitten. I mean, they throw them. We've been over there. They throw the cat around. And, and, and uh, actually, uh, the parents can be, or I should say, my friend Matthew can be pretty rough on the cat, too. Uh, I, I don't want to go into details, but we're thinking about my wife and I adopting the, this kitten, but it scares me because I can totally relate to being mean to, to cats. When, when I was younger, uh, probably 12, 13 years old, my sister got this cat. It was kind of a grayish uh, white cat named Tyler. And I was really jealous because my dad got the cat for my sister. And my anytime my sister asked anything from my dad, my dad would give my sister anything. So I was really jealous. So I'm passive aggressive and I was passive aggressive at 12 or 13. And so anytime the cat would come, uh, I would pick the cat up and I would throw him down the back stairs. Well, you do this three or four times, the cat starts to figure this out. And when the cat saw me in the hall, he would he would dash and go the opposite way. So I'm really afraid that if we we adopt this cat, that it's going to be like some sort of karmic payback. And so when I'm sleeping at night, the cat's going to like jump up and, and scratch my eyes out. So, but enough about cats. Uh, we have a great show for you uh, today. Um, Steve Waltine. Uh, he performs on the main stage at, at Second City. He was also uh, in the Improv Shakespeare uh, Company, or I think he still is technically in the Improv Shakespeare Company. And if you ever get a chance to see them, they are amazing. And they just did a show in New York with Patrick Stewart. Uh, and I actually worked with those guys in an episode of Improv Nerd, and they're just, I mean, I'm sure they carried him like they carried uh, me. So uh, getting back to Steve Waltine, I think you're really going to love this interview because Steve talks about growing up in Vermont. He talks about uh, therapy, and I like anybody who talks openly about therapy. He talks about Second City and the process over there about creating a show. Uh, what I really loved about this interview was Steve was very honest, he was open, and uh, of course he was inspirational. I think you'll enjoy it. This is on wheels. This is on wheels, yes. Okay. Thank you for doing the show. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Now, you described yourself when you were younger. Yeah. Generally happy, yes, frequently anxious. Yes. Okay? Now, you grew up in Vermont, and to me that seems like a totally serene place. What made you so anxious? Ah, uh, Gosh. Everything. <laughs> it's not. It's never what's. It's never what's immediately around me. It's all. It's all internal, you know. So like, I was the kind of kid who, uh, I can remember, laying awake at night and always thinking I heard noises in the house, 
and you know like my parents bedroom was straight down a hallway and I could almost kind of see it in the distance through the open door so I would lay in bed and try and stay in bed as long as I could but I was convinced every night that someone was breaking in the house in Vermont yeah <laughs> not likely none of the things I worry about are very likely which maybe is why uh, you know could be why I worry about them but you know when I hear when I hear about something I almost this continues to this day like, I, I don't want to know about the existence of something potentially bad, because as soon as I know that it exists, I worry about it, no matter how likely or unlikely Give me an example. Well, so, like, when, the, uh, when I was a kid, my parents, who were very protective, you know, when the idea of kidnappers was first introduced <laughs> to my brain, you know... Uh, I instantly, every car I saw was a potential kidnap. <laughs> so I could remember, I have this memory of being a little kid and um, be playing out in the front yard and seeing the UPS truck and not knowing what it was, but just like this big, massive, and all I could think was, how many kids must be in the back? <laughs> it was just like a truck designed for like chaining children. <laughs> And so, uh, so I think I like ran and hid somewhere. And so, I, and it resulted in more danger because then instead of just playing in the front yard, I ran and hid somewhere, and then my parents had to go and find me. So it's like, and I'm not really a hypochondriac, but I have had bouts of things like that. Like if there's a weird disease or mental thing that you can have, like just don't tell me about it because <laughs> if I know about it, chances are I'm going to start to think it's happening to me. But. Realistically, you have suffered from anxiety, yeah. and you said uh, the last uh, nine years ago you started to get treatment for it. Yeah, uh, you went into therapy, which mm -hmm. I love when comedians I are love it. Uh, honest. Uh, but the cliche about therapy with people in comedy is like we don't want to do it because it's it's going to ruin how funny we are. <laughs> well, that's true about any treatment, right? And I, th I think that that was I, I was medicated for a little while. Like I was on well, what were you Paxil on? and something else. Did that affect your performance at all? I don't know. I gained fifty pounds when I was oh. on Paxil. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it, it was doing something. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know the the worry is always that like it's it's all about who you are, which is why I'm a or that your chemical makeup has to do with you know, is linked to your art or something. So that I, therapy is better for me because therapy is just talking. So it doesn't change the chemistry of my brain. It just helps me to be aware of, you know, who I am and how I think. And, we talked before yeah. backstage about like, I'm a huge self-sabotager, oh, you yeah. know? And you said that you were too, which I'm surprised. How did therapy help you? Because you're on the main stage. I mean, I, 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 I could never get that far. <laughs> well, you know, self-sabotage is, uh, I think sometimes it, it's, uh, uh, I use it in, it's a, it's a management uh, strategy. For? Well, for, for managing the anxiety. So you choose to worry about a lot of things that probably are never going to that, that some and some deep level you know aren't real in order to manage. So like me as a four-year-old kid in bed worried that there's a, a burglar in the house and probably there's some rational part of my brain somewhere that, that just knows that that's probably not the case. Like you understand rationally how unlikely it is 
but it's a way to it's a sort of a place to hang your hat and it's it's a way to like if you've got kind of an overactive mind which I do and I think it sounds like you do too you know that and I think a lot of people who do what we do have an overactive mind it's sort of just you know it's a it's something to keep that little hamster running on the wheel so that you don't have to I'm worried about a whole bunch of bullshit things that will can I say that on this sure um, that that I some deep seated part of me knows you know are 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 fictional and um, that helps me to uh, not worry about some of the things that are more practical and right in front of me so I think sometimes it's an ally of mine you know? so how did you go, how did you deal how did you get over the anxiety I don't think you ever get you over you don't anxiety. you learn to live with it that's the that's the unfortunate. Uh, truth of these things. I mean, I think so you can medicate or you can, I think it's the idea of, uh, and, and that's, I think that the secret of therapy, right, is that you go, and I think that's why a lot of people go once and they're like, fuck this, uh, <laughs> is that you say, because uh, you think you're going to, you think it's going to be like, um, you're going to get a diagnosis, you're going to go and say, let me tell you, this is the way that I think about stuff, okay? And so uh, just give me a, what am I? I'm a fill in the blank. And then what's the treatment for that? I want yeah. a friend. Yeah. That's what I want when I get a friend. Oh, you want a friend? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I want that a little bit too, right? But yeah. Uh, but I, I think I, when I first went, I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, I was, what, you know, 24. I, 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 I sort of said, okay, I'm going to unpack a bunch of stuff from my life. And I'm guessing that you've got a book somewhere on this shelf that describes a person like me. And you're going to say, okay, well, so you've got this, and this is what you need to do about it, right? And so I think it can be disappointing when they say, well, no, you know, you're, of course, you're, which is also uh, refreshing, is that, you know, you're unique, and this is what it is, and the strategy isn't to stop it. The, um, the strategy is to sort of to live with it and to come to understand your own mind and embrace it. And, and what my therapist one time said... Um, Do I know your therapist? How, I don't know how you would. But, uh, I've gone to most of them. Uh, Girl, a woman or man? A man. Okay. And I would you say... Want, give me the name. Do I... Do I no. No. Why wouldn't you... No. I don't know. We're on a podcast. Okay. Maybe I'd give it to you afterwards. Okay. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't know why I feel weird about that. But I, I will tell you a story about m- meeting somebody who knows my therapist. But um, uh, one time he said, uh, I said, God, I hate this anxiety. I just, I just hate it. Um, and he said, well, what if you love it? You know, it was just like, a, it felt like a little bit of a therapist trick, but I was like, well, I don't. I don't love it. Why would you say that? He goes, well, just imagine that you love it. And if you do love it, then why do you love it? And I said, well, okay, so first of all, I don't love it, but let's pretend I love it. Why would I, why would I love it? And I said, well, because it's familiar. And, and then he said, uh, and this was a real therapist trick. He doesn't usually do this. He was like, and where do we get that word? I was like, oh, so it all, all comes back to the family. But, like, um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that was, a, that was maybe a clever turn of phrase. But the idea that it's familiar, the idea that it's something that's kind of always there, it's a companion. You know, so I did a um, two-person show many years ago at I.O. with Sarah Haskins, um, who's now a famous writer in Hollywood. And uh, who's she working for now? She is. I think she's got a sitcom with ABC. Okay. Or a development deal. Okay. That, yeah. Um, and she's written a couple screenplays, and uh, she's terrific. And so her and I were doing this two-person show at I.O. and. Um, 
we uh, had been doing it for a while, and we went to get drinks one night. And she had been a big part of my life. Luckily, I wasn't dating her at the time, but I, I, I certainly went through this writing process with her that was, you know, like... And, did and you have a crush on her? I think I probably did at various points, and now I can't remember if I talked to my therapist about this. Okay. <laughs> you, can talk about but, me, you can talk to me about it. Right. <laughs> well, and that, but then I... Because I, I, what I eventually found out about Sarah, then I had to go back and think, shit, what have I said about her in this office? Because I... Uh, and this was probably the first or second year I had been going to my therapist, and I know I'd been talking about this show a lot, like the creative process and how we were putting it all together and all this. And um, we were having a drink together after the show one night, and I mentioned therapy, and she said, God, you know, I've been thinking about therapy, and it sounds like a great idea, and I wonder if I should go. And um, and I said, well, you know, I, I really like my therapist. I could recommend uh, him, or if you're uncomfortable with going to the same person as, as me, I'm sure he could recommend somebody good, which I've done for a lot of people. And she says, well, what's his name? And I say the name, and she's like, you are kidding me. I mean, that guy's practically my uncle. She was like, I, he's, his wife is best friends with my mom, and I grew up with his kids. And so then I went to therapy the next week, and I said, you know, all this time that I've been coming in here and talking about this woman named Sarah, who I'm writing this comedy show with, who you know, went to Harvard and all these <laughs> details and signifiers, you know, I was like, did you know that I was talking about Sarah Haskins? And he goes, yeah, I, I had a pretty good... And I said, at what point would you have said, uh, I know this woman, like... And he said, I mean, you know, uh, he's very professional. He sort of said, well, I think... If, if you had started to say anything that was... I, I, I would like to imagine, I guess I could ask him, you know, if I had started to date her or something, and, like I had really started to really talk about stuff of great substance, he might have been like, just to let you know, I know this young woman. All right, in middle school, you're afraid to do plays. Well, I don't know if I was... I just didn't... I, I didn't... I was attracted to working on the stage, but I didn't like uh, musicals. Not because I didn't think they were cool, but because I was afraid of singing. I had never... I've had this thing my whole life of, um, you know, this is true of sports, too, where it's like I, I always sort of felt like there were people that... Some, they received some training somewhere along the line that I had missed. And I think now that I'm older, I realize that that's not the case. People just go and they learn things. But, you know, I always thought, like, well, there was something imparted to you that I didn't get. And I felt that about musicals. It's like all my friends could sing, and I didn't know how. And so I was embarrassed to sing in the auditions, and I didn't, well, you know, I, I felt like that. There's a skill I didn't have. But you must have been funny as a kid, because growing up, people said you should be a stand-up, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I was that, I think a lot of people in our line of work, right, so I wasn't good at sports, I couldn't sing, I didn't really play an instrument. You were into so science fiction. I was into science fiction, so I was a little bit nerdy, and like, I didn't, I think I ended up kind of expressing myself in that, in that comedy way. I can remember, you know, somebody's telling me I should be a stand-up before I knew what that was, but I perceived that it was a compliment. So I was like, all right, I should be a stand-up. I'll find out what that means. But and then like you, cool you go to Middlebury yeah. and, uh, in, in Vermont, yeah. and then you see this improv troupe. Yeah. What changes? 
Well, so I think I knew I wanted to do something in comedy, but I hadn't figured out quite what it was yet. And then I just, I can, re- I can remember that show, like going and seeing um, the improv troupe at Middlebury and just thinking like, God, I will die if I can't do this, if I can't get into this troupe. What because, attracted you to it? Um, the immediacy of it, I think that, which still is the thing to me that makes improv my favorite thing of, of all the different ways that you can do comedy is that it uh, it's real I mean you can't uh, anything anytime I see a scripted thing and I appreciate scripted things a lot and I like I like creating scripted things but there's that part of my brain that's like you had an infinite amount of time to craft that joke you know mm-hmm. when I see somebody improvise a perfect moment and it's less frequent because scripted things I hold scripted things to a higher standard because I, they should. You have time to work on them. But when you, when something perfect happens in improv, there's nothing more perfect, and there's nothing more impressive. Because I know that it happened spontaneously, and I know that you only had that moment to to get it. So then you move to Chicago. Yeah. You give yourself one year. We have money or something. Is it? Um, did I? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I just kind of thought. I'll do the I'll do the training program and then I'll And go you to realize now this was not my experience. I always when I started out it was like I'm great, I'm the best, why isn't main stage hiring me? That that's me. But I'm I turned out to be bitter. Um, <laughs> you come here and you're you you look at it differently. You say basically that it's gonna it's gonna take me a long time. You make a painful realization that you had a lot to learn before you could be really good. But it took me a long time to make that realization. I think I did come here thinking not that main stage was gonna hire me necessarily, but that like I I went into classes at I O and Second City thinking uh, like you know well I'm treating them like auditions rather than classes. So, so let me little, just make sure this teacher knows that like, I'm really I'm and for, good at this. Right, and, there, and, and that is, there's no learning in that. No. That's been my experience because no. I've done that. Yeah, that's, and I think a lot of people do that yeah. because especially now more and more colleges have improv dreams. So people, we come here thinking we know what we're doing. And to some degree, we probably do. Did it. you come here thinking you were, you know, the, the best ever? I mean, because of college? Were you a no. big star in college? Uh, well, yeah, in college, right, like, there was one improv troupe on this tiny campus, and so, you know, that I had had four years of experience in that and felt like I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, and I didn't have a, a real appreciation of the depth of what this community was. So I came thinking, right, I have this skill set. I don't think I would have articulated this consciously, but I think I was thinking on some level, well, I'm not here to get better. I'm here to get recognized. And I think that that's obviously very wrong-headed. If I had been able to articulate it, then I probably would have realized how wrong-headed that was. Wait, so, uh, and you also auditioned for the Second City Conservatory, and you didn't get in. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. What was that day like? Oh, that sucked. I mean, I I came and I signed up for I.O. classes, and I was kind of taking this I.O. class Wednesdays from 3 to 6, and a, a lot of times that was the only three hours of the week where I left my apartment. And then... Um, you might have been depressed, too. I mean, just write, <laughs> I want to put this in your file. I was. I didn't know. I'm going to write you a prescription for Lipitor. See? And then... Uh, Wouldn't it be great? That's what therapy should be. Or not, not what it should be, but that's what I wanted. I wanted this. You are this, and what you need to do is this. You know? But it's not as simple as that. But uh, so then I, I auditioned for the conservatory and I didn't get in. And I remember on that phone call and I said, "Well, what is the, um, you know, is there a reason why?" And then I heard like sort of the shuffling of papers and 
um, the person said, uh, it was Runjit. You know Runjit? Yeah, Runjit, uh, who used to run, yeah. well, what's his last name, Sori? Yeah. Okay, who used to run the training center. Yeah, I like that guy. I know yeah. him a little bit now. I've never told him this, but like, there's still part of me that every time I see him, I'm like, because uh, he was the one who called and it was like, or and tell, told me I didn't. And he looked at, I again must have looked at my resume. And he goes, I, yeah, this seems like seems like maybe you've got some theater experience, but you need more improv experience. And I was so mad, I was like, it's the opposite. What? Um, who knows? So when was? Because I think we've all had this moment. So you, you you're here in Chicago. You've done it for a while. When was that show or that performance where you go? You know what? I'm pretty good. I can do this. Do you remember that? I mean, I think it's continues for all of my improv career. You know, you have one of those every once in a while, and then you have a bunch that, the, you know, the opposite is true. I had a bunch. I mean, I already came to Chicago. I wouldn't have moved here if I didn't have some nights like that in college where I was like, I'm good at this. I can do this. And then, you know, I got here, and I, I, I've always just tried to do a lot of shows. And so that, the, that you hope that the good ones outweigh the bad ones. But you have, I mean, still to this day, right? And I, I do eight shows a week on the main stage. There are nights when I walk off stage thinking, I've got no business being here. Really? And then there are, oh, absolutely. What do you do with How those days? How could you not? Yeah. Well, well I, I, but that's I just, my life. I mean, right. that's, you know, that's, I think of that when I get up in the morning, you know? <laughs> um, and then a bad show, I, I'm, I'm, and I joke about this. I said this, I want to kill myself. Have you ever... Gotten to that point? I don't know if I, I haven't been suicidal. Not, not but, uh, that, that you were going to do it, yeah, but no, actually, like, yeah, no, I over. hate myself sometimes. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, who you are if you don't feel that sometimes. Especially if you're up in front of people and eating shit, you know, yeah. like it's it's a terrible feeling. And so then, but then you, that's the great thing. It's one of the things I love about my job, right? Is I go out there and I do that eight times a week, and then sometimes on my off night I go play Armando. So doing nine shows. The hope is that, you know, six or seven of those are going to be really good. And that, you know, you leave stage feeling like, right, great, I'm a professional. I know how to do this. And that the, the ones that aren't so good, you know, and at Second City, hopefully, usually that means you had a bad set, right? I mean, we have a scripted show, so hopefully that show is good. Sometimes the audience doesn't respond the way you want them to. And sometimes you don't nail the moments in the way that you intend to. But, um, you know, sometimes we'll have bad sets and you'll just think like, oh, shit, this is, I don't belong here. But the hope is that, you just have to tell yourself, and maybe that's something that therapy helps me with, is you, you got to say, like, all right, well, I just got to get out there tomorrow night and do it again and hope that it's better. Do you ever fear that you're going to be fired from Second City? That's when I get a big job, like, I, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to be fired. They're going to find Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, that's always the... That's why I do my own stuff, because I can't yeah. get fired. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, that there's always just the fear of, like, being... Uh, yeah, like not not being good, self sabotaging, you know, being uh, found out to be a, a fraud or something. You know, did you ever see that uh, the the There's a documentary called Heart of Darkness, which is the uh, about Francis Ford Coppola making Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And there's all these tapes that like his wife and other people. Which I mean, I'd be so fucking mad, but they <laughs> taped him without his knowledge. Uh-huh. Like the wife had a recorder in their bedroom at night, as he's uh, and it, I just remember like he's he's just made like The Godfather. I mean, he's Francis Ford Coppola. He's the best director in film. Right. He and sleeps with his Oscars at night. I mean, yeah. He, he, well, he was like pacing around the room, you know, being like, "I'm a fucking fraud. I'm a phony. They're gonna find out." You know, it's like so. I don't think you're ever immune to that. You know, you would think. I mean, t- me ten years ago would think, well, if you're on the main stage. Then you probably would never think like that, but you know sometimes the the bigger the prize, the bigger the stakes. And so if you've come so far, 
it's very easy to look back over your shoulder and say, oh, I've, this has been a series of accidents. Well, and plus, I think my long history with Second City, it's, it's a, there's a lot of fear in that building, I think. Yeah. You know? And there's a lot of expectations. And I've seen people, especially when they're there too long, just go crazy. Yeah. You know, and want to go back and, you know, kill somebody. Yeah, no, there is. And, and I think one of the things that I like about that, that job is that, you know, there is a lot of that. And I think that some of the people there, you know, the producers that are currently there and the directors that I've worked with are pretty good at once you get to the main stage. I mean, I've heard a lot of people who say things like, oh, you know, they, that's, you're pretty hogtied at Second City and it's for the tourists and there only certain kinds of scenes they'll let you do there. That's not my experience. You know, my experience is that once you're in that room, they give you a certain amount of trust. No one Second City producer, director, during the writing process of this show ever told me, no, you can't do that. Like, we've tried everything, you know? Great, weird idea, try it. And then if it eats shit, like, you'll know... And then when the director comes back the next night and says, you know, we're not doing that again, you can't really be like, why? You know? You also did a show about your father. Your, yeah. your dad died a couple years ago? Yeah, uh, 2010. Yeah. 2010. He was 62. He dies totally surprised, right? Yeah. And um, tell us a little about your father and your relationship with him. Oh, he's terrific. Um, yeah, I don't know where do you start. It's my dad, so uh, he he was just a great. He was the most supportive and uh, loving and wonderful man, and uh, he was a big fan of this stuff and and always uh, encouraged me to do it. And came and flew out and saw shows. And um, he was uh, uh, a he was in finance, so he was a stockbroker, and he was also uh, involved in politics. And so he worked for Senator Leahy, who was Democratic senator from Vermont. And um, a real just sort of like outgoing, funny, terrific guy. And, uh, you know, he's my, my best friend. And, and uh, so that was just like the worst thing ever. And I think it, talking about the kinds of things that I worry about on a daily basis, that's a, to me a good reminder of the fact that like the bad shit that's going to happen in your life is probably not the stuff that you're worrying about on a daily basis, you know? Like, when, when the bad shit happens, it's like a lightning bolt, and it's, uh, you know, it's something that you never could see coming. And then you make, you do a show, or pieces of, show, uh, part of a show, yeah. about your dad. How do you make that it happens, and then, what is it, six months later, you come back to Chicago? I come and, back, yeah, three or four months later, yeah. And then you write the show. How do you make something like that, that's still fresh, that still hurts, funny? Um, well, my thing with it, too, is I wasn't, I, I tried to, one of the things I've tried to do in the past few years is uh, unencumber, is that a word? Myself with that, the idea that, we'll, we'll, have we'll look that up, we'll, we'll have some check that. <laughs> um, the idea that I need to be the funny on stage. So that, like, that's, uh, and I know that's something that you talk about, art of slow comedy and all that, is that, so I never worry too much about that. My, my only thing I'm ever really worried about is being interesting. And being funny is one way to be interesting. Well, the, I think the other challenge is something like that. And I've done one-man shows where it is therapy, and, you know, the insurance covered it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How do you not make it therapy, you know? Yeah, well, so I didn't want to make it therapy. I just think, you know, for me, this was uh, a life event that, like, you know, you everyone is going to lose 
a, a parent unless they die before their parents, which is even more. Well, that's terrible. Right. That, that's we, terrible. we don't hope that. Either, right. Right. Exactly. So we. So so the best we can hope for is that you will live to see your parents die. You know, uh, because the, the alternative is worse. So, so this is going to happen to everybody, and I think to me there was a universality in that that I didn't I didn't want to make it too much about me, but I wanted to. If this is this is either happens to you, you've either lost a parent, or you will, and which is a terrifying thought, you know. And so that that there's a universality in that experience that I think is worth. It's not just therapy for me. It's um, and there weren't pieces. I mean, I did talk in that show as myself, sort of setting up pieces. But in the actual pieces, I never was actually playing my dad or or me. I mean, I was playing versions of um, and playing with the with those events. But I tried to keep it somewhat universal. We're going to improvise now. Yeah. Are we ready? Yeah. Uh, we're, all we need is a, we're going to take a suggestion, then we'll, we'll do the lights. I just want you to know yes. there's a rip in the back of my shirt. <laughs> I'm aware of it, <laughs> and I'm not worried about it. <laughs> and I don't want you to worry about it. When did you realize you had a rip? A long time ago, Jimmy, but I like this shirt enough <laughs> that it's not going to be a problem. <laughs> but I, I know sometimes people get very worried about it. Okay, great. You, do you know that you have a rip in the back of your shirt? Yes. Is that something your mom would say if she came to a show? Yes, okay. she would be mortified. Okay, great. But this rip does not does not interfere with this being a good shirt. Is my the, position. Okay, for the people that are uh, for the people that are uh, are hearing this on a podcast, where is the rip? It's in the so they can visualize where the it's, rip. It's it's a big rip. It's too like <laughs> for me doing this, right? And it, it went like that. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't interfere with the, the function of the shirt. But other people seem to get really worried about it. Has your mom ever said, you know what, Steve, maybe you should throw that out? Uh, yeah, I'm sure she has. Okay. Because if I, yeah, that, that's something my wife would say to yeah. me, you know. Yeah. I, I came home last week and I had a hole in my pants. And yeah. She noticed that. And, I wear clothes for years. Yeah. I mean, until they just can't. This is a great shirt. <laughs> so many things I like about it. Yeah, I got The front is great. Yeah, right. The front is amazing. I just got the I back, got my, not so much. I got my headshots taken in this shirt, and even the lady at the headshots was just a shame. You can't wear that shirt anymore. But I, I will wear this shirt. <laughs> and especially when the weather gets like this, I can layer. I can put other things on top of it, so no one ever knows. But people, right. you, you guys are gonna know. Right. You know. And for the people that are listening to the podcast and are here. This is all staying in. I just I, well, I hope so. Okay, so we just need a suggestion, and we'll uh, improvise for you. Blimp. Blimp. Great. Improv. They are coming over to the city now. They <laughs> yeah. are. When they arrive, I want to make sure that uh, you're not going to be too forthcoming with the details of what we've been doing here. No, it's between me and you like we've agreed upon. Yes. I would hate to have to get rid of you at this later time. <laughs> no, that would not be very nice. Let us hope they do not come here. But if they are to find their way into our bunker, 
we may have to take our own lives. Are you prepared to do that, Hans? Yes, I am, Siegfried. I've been doing this for a long time. When I signed up for this army, I said to myself, someday, this day will come. You look scared. I cannot pretend that I am not scared for my life to end. <laughs> and yet, if I must do this to protect the work that we've been doing, then I must. Would you like to write a note to your wife? Yes, I already have done that. Good. As have I. That shows me that you're thinking ahead. Yes, I'm ready for this. I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. I've been a little depressed lately. <laughs> the war has gone on much longer than I anticipated, and the weather, not so good. Heinz, are you hoping that we'll have to kill ourselves? Yes, I am. Heinz. I took this job because I thought this would be the quickest way to die. <laughs> it is my hope that we will live that we will be rescued and we will be able to go back to uh, our wives and children. Uh, you're so optimistic. <laughs> Why would you want to die? What do I have to live for? You have a wife? Oh. <laughs> we have not uh, had sex in a long time. We have been here. <laughs> when you come back, things will be different. Don't try to talk me out of this. I have a very bad life. <laughs> it is awful life. It is never beyond repair. When you come home, things will be different. You will be appreciated for the work that you've done. You will be a hero. Oh, that only lasts uh, for a couple weeks. And then you go back to your job in your factory. Oh, what is that? It is a life. I wanted to babies. be an opera singer. <laughs> I wanted to sing, be Mozart, Beethoven. Now I'm here. I'm unhappy. And you try to cheer me up. <laughs> Mozart and Beethoven weren't singing. <laughs> <laughs> Your view of the world is tilted. <laughs> Want to sing? Why did you not sing? This is a regret. It's never too late. A perfect. Acoustics here. <laughs> I want to sing. I want to sing in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, not just you. That does not happen overnight. You must practice. Uh, I was born for this. I have a gift. I don't have to do work. If I really have this gift, I, it will be given to me, much like our leader. Do not bring up our leader. Yes, I bring up our leader. <laughs> And he was born to do this? Yes, I do. What tells you this? I read in this book. <laughs> First chapter, it says, I am a born leader. It's written like a fourth grader. <laughs> Have you heard of the things they are doing? The more I hear of this, the more nervous. Oh, he has a right. He, everything he does, he's doing for our good. I'm lacing my boot. <laughs> really? Yes. What about bringing people from the ghettos and killing them? If you believe what they say, that is what they are doing. 
Do you believe in that? Yes, I do believe in that. What? Why? <laughs> what? Why? Because he is doing it to, to, to take over the world. And what good does this bring? This will bring us more jobs. Those people in the ghettos, they have taken away our jobs. You just said you would kill yourself if you went to a factory. <laughs> Some of the greatest composers and singers in history were Jewish. All right, here. He kills those people, there's less competition than I I'm looking out for myself. Yes, that is the problem with this country. Everyone is looking out for themselves. Well, now you're I will not be something to kill yourself. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe I won't kill myself. <laughs> just to spite me, then. Yes, to spite you. Maybe I'll just clip myself. I'll take that uh, knife and I'll just stick it in my eye. That will do more than cripple you. <laughs> That's kind of cripple. That's a terrible idea. Oh, my God. You know what? Go ahead now. I don't care. You know what? I have imagination. I have creativity. I think uh, big. You, you just do what you're told to do. You act like you don't, but you do. Really? That's what you think of me, huh? Yeah. Fine. Then what if I blow up the bunker? You would do that for me? <laughs> to prove that you're so creative? To end this silly struggle and to show my indignation in the face of the Fuhrer. Yes. You have a lot more imagination than I give you credit for. Hmm. Did you think I was born? Yes. I have been here with you 12, 15 hours a day in this bunker. Why do you think it's only me and you? All the other people, they find you to be a bore. What? Yes. Who says this? Schwetzel says this. <laughs> Name five other people. <laughs> I did not know what I was doing. That was fun. Yes, you did. Um, where did that come from? That, what we just did? Yeah, for you. Okay, so blimp, um, and then you think, like, the. I just tend to do, like, my first mental association, usually, and so I just thought of, like, um, what are those, a Zeppelin, you know, so then I just thought, you know, World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so fun... <clears throat> fun accent for us uh, and then that's kind of a fun you know we established that we're in a bunker and that's a great place for two guys who've probably been there for a while did you know we were in the bunker from the start or did we do I no in the, uh, initially I thought we were in the blimp mm-hmm. um, and then I, I, I think your line you said something about yeah they're coming soon I said something about blimps and you said they're coming soon so then I thought we were on the ground so then I, that put us in a bunker and to me that was a, a fun sort of like contained space for two people to exist in where um, I, I like those kinds of scenes because then it's like it makes sense why you're just kind of hanging around killing time mm-hmm. and that the, the threat of imminent death maybe would give you stuff to reflect on and right. I don't know if I was really 
thinking all that stuff in during, but I think that that occurs to me that that's like a good uh, place to sit in. And then my favorite thing about that scene was that your choice that you were suicidal anyway. <laughs> this whole thing about like being Nazis in a bunker that might have to commit suicide and one guy was really looking forward to it. <laughs> that's, that's that scene in a sentence, right? Like that's, that's the game of the scene. Because I didn't, I was totally lost. I had a great time. I was, I, I say I was lost, but I, I certainly, I was following more than I'm telling people. Uh, I don't know what point I was going to make. <laughs> I think we should go to the audience and get yeah, questions. Sure. Okay. Um, all right. If we could just turn the house lights up and uh, ask questions uh, to Steve uh, about what we just did or just anything in general. Yes. Yeah, I have a couple of things. Uh, yeah. You're on the main stage now, and that's you improvise to get there. Um, there's a certain amount of acting. How do you think of yourself now as an artist? Are you an improviser, an actor, a blend? Um, yeah, I think I ha- would have to be both. I mean, I think of myself as an improviser first and foremost, um, but certainly the main stage is uh, an acting job. I mean, it's a, it's a, you have to generate material through improv and writing, so you're an improviser and a writer. But once the show is up and running like it is now, you know, your, your job really, for the most part, is to show up eight times a week and be an actor. Um, so yeah, I think it's a multifaceted thing. I mean, if I had to, my favorite artistic outlet is improvisation. But I think, you know, to be a good improviser, you probably have to be a good actor. And um, I've certainly done jobs that are, I mean, like, like, like I said, like the current job is, is probably more acting. You know, I'll go and do this show tonight, which will be two acts of scripted material. So it's, that's an acting job. And then we'll get to do an improv set. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask is, is you did uh, the Late Night Late Show for a long time, yeah. and that was something that, that for me was like consistently, week after week, funny and innovative. What was that like? For people that don't know, that was a, a, a live talk show at, at I.O. Yeah. Um, Saturday nights at midnight, we did it for probably three or four years. It was uh, just a great, great experience, and I think that uh, it's useful for me to remember that now because I... Initially, I was resistant to that idea. Seth Whiteberg and Jordan Klepper and Sarah Haskins kind of formed that idea and brought it to a bunch of us. And uh, I sort of thought, that that format's been done a bunch before. But then we sort of tried to innovate within it, which is that it was a little bit like, if anybody remembers the Larry Sanders show that Gary Shandling did, is, you know, sort of about the dysfunctional life of this talk show host that takes place mostly backstage. But our show was all of... On stage, so you would sort of learn this guy's dysfunctional life from the from how the show was sort of coming apart. But it just gave us the opportunity to write um, a bunch of great weird stuff every week and create a running order. It was a, an immense amount of work, but we generated so much material, and there were so many terrific people involved with it. So it was just uh, that's probably the most um, prolific I've ever been as a writer, just because it was like coming up with new bits every week. It's very labor-intensive, but very fun. Great. Right here? Yeah, yes. Will there be a Bullet Lounge reunion anytime in the near future? I hope so. There was one... Uh, Bullet Lounge was a team at I.O. Herald team, yeah. Um, that <laughs> probably was around from like 2007 to 2010-ish. Um, and yeah, great group of people and uh, I love playing with, with those folks. And yeah, I mean... I, I, I hope so. A lot of those guys are, you know, so we've got like 
Seth and Brandon and TJ and Thomas are all out in LA, so it's a little bit harder and uh, people are kind of scattered, but I hope so. I mean, I think we would all like to, so. Yes? Um, is writing scary for you? <laughs> writing is scary for me as an actor and improviser. Did you always know that you would be able to write? Well, I mean, you know, everything's scary for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, is, it is scary. And I think that for, for me, uh, I think, again, that's part of the reason I, I probably like improvising more is that there is, I just, I'm, I'm much more self-censoring and much, I hold myself to a much higher standard when I write. And I think that's a, the big challenge is to sort of free yourself from that because it's like I'll write something and I'll look at it and it'll be there on the page and whether I'm sending it to somebody or however I'm writing it or knowing that I'm going to say it out loud at some point it always seems not good enough whereas if we're just doing this I'm much more forgiving of myself because there's no time because you just kind of have to say it and go with it and um so I think I mean as I say this out loud right the trick is obvious is you just got to make yourself do it and get through it and not um And so giving yourself deadlines, having, you know, so I, I, I write a lot of stuff with, with Jordan Klepper. I have a, you know, he's my writing partner. And so we send stuff back and forth. And I think that's really useful to me because it's like, I may hate everything that I've written, but I feel like he's expecting pages. So then I got to send it. Um, and then oftentimes I find out that it's not as bad as I thought it was. And um, Late Night Lake Show is another great example of that. You know, it's like you have a show every week, so you can't afford to be precious about things you just got to do it and it's another thing i love about the second city process is it's kind of like you have a show tonight so you just got, and everybody's got a pitch and you got to you know well, when we're in the process of writing a show you just got to get up and do it and then as much as you might hate it then it's up in front of an audience and you hear the response and it's either good or bad and so i think you know it's just you got to make yourself do it i think it's really hard Were you always this in touch? I'm 48, and I'm still trying to get in touch with my emotions. Have you always been in touch with your emotions? Like, it's no problem for you to say, oh, I was really scared, or I'm suffering from anxiety, or it was sad, I felt sad when you you lost your dad. Yeah, well, I mean, I I might, uh, I'm probably not sharing everything. There probably are things that I'm scared to share, but I think... Give me an example. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't, Jimmy, I'm scared. No, uh, the... But, yeah, I mean, I just think people are more interesting that way. The people that I like and want to talk to, and it's like... You know, I have this friend who said to me, like, this stuck with me, is one of my best friends from growing up, who's one of these guys who, I mean, like you or me, like, uh, like when you do your Armando monologues, Jimmy, it's just like, this is, it's like everything is up for grabs. You're very, very, very open, and... Uh, you know that expression that was going I don't know if people still say this anymore but you know people say TMI like too much, you, you, too much information <laughs> you'd be talking to somebody you'd be like TMI you know you tell some story and my friend uh, who's also named Steve but this is not a way of me telling a story about myself with that uh, he's he said yeah. <laughs> you know he he and I agree he was just like anybody who says TMI to anything I say is somebody who's just I just I just instantly know they're not worth my time as a friend because if if there's anything that I try to tell you that's too much information um fuck off <laughs> and I think that that to me was like yeah I think that that to me is sort of like okay there is those are the kinds of people that I want to be friends with not the people who are like oh don't tell me that you know but I, I, but I also think for guys to say that we're afraid or we're sad yeah. or whatever it's really you know you know you, oh you're sensitive or yeah. you know hey, hey, hey I'm going to try to you, don't feel sad yeah. you know that 
that, that drives me nuts. Is well, that- I think that that to me is, uh, it, you know, in as I struggled to try and find words to say that do my father justice, I think that to me, honestly, is one of the great sort of tributes I can give to my dad is that he was a sensitive man and he never uh, made me feel like any of that stuff was uh, off limits. And he was not gruff. He was not, um, he wasn't one of those guys, guys that ever made me feel like, oh, it's, you can't show your emotions. And if anything, he sort of encouraged it. So I probably owe him that. You, My male role model was somebody who was open and who was... Right. Was he, did you ever see him cry? I mean, was he... Not a lot. I remember seeing him cry um, at my grandfather's funeral, which is my mom's father. Um, and I remember that being really scary to see your father cry. Um, so I guess when I say that he was sensitive, I, I guess he wasn't so sensitive that I was seeing him cry all the time. I think that was the one time I remember. But I just I don't remember him ever being somebody who balked at sensitivity. You know, he was... Uh, he never made me feel, which I gather from talking to other men, that sometimes your father makes you feel like you shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't be, pick up the football. You know, like, my dad was never like that. So uh, that, that may be part of, you know, I'm thankful that I don't. Great. Right here? Uh, I absolutely loved you and improvised Shakespeare. Can you say something about, like, what you get? I know you haven't done it in a while because yeah. you've been at Second City, but hopefully you'll be back soon. Yeah. What do you get from improvised Shakespeare that you can't, you don't get as a performer elsewhere? Um, it's my favorite thing to improvise because I think that the heightened language provides a really quick doorway into the best kind of scene work, which is, you know, when you have to speak in these poetic terms... Everything becomes sort of life and death, and Shakespeare characters are driven by really deep motivations. And, and for people who haven't seen it, explain a little what you guys do. So we take a suggestion for the title of a play that's never been done. So you get the title of a play, and then we improvise a two-act. Sometimes if we're on the road, it's a one-act um, play in the style of, you know, in Elizabethan dialogue, using the themes, the language, and the styles of, of Shakespeare. Um, so it sounds really difficult because of the linguistic challenge, but I actually find it in a lot of ways easier. Um, the language is a little bit tough to get your mouth around sometimes, but the um, actually playing because the style is so forgiving to the like. Pretty much, you you wanna you wanna love somebody, you wanna kill somebody, you wanna look at the character arcs of all those Shakespeare characters. It's very easy and, and speaking in the heightened language makes it easy to express those deep emotional things and those those wants and character wants I think that's what I learned from that show drive improv what does your character want at any given moment if you're ever stuck on stage it's like what do I want what do I want from this other person and the Shakespeare show it's so easy to answer those questions so take a look at our scene what did our characters want um, so maybe that was a part in which I was I, I would call myself not as uh, effective as I could have been in terms of did I have a clear character want from you at the top and I don't think I did I was probably more concerned with talking in a funny voice and laying the scene and creatively using the suggestion blimp you know and I think we, we probably got away with it I probably could have clarified a lot better what my feelings were towards you right and what I wanted from you as a character which I can't honestly say right now that I fully no, I guess I wanted I wanted to know that you were made at, at the top. I wanted to know that you were made of tough enough stuff to do what we needed to do, and I was worried that you weren't. I was afraid you weren't going to kill yourself. Um, and then the fun reveal, of course, was that you wanted to. And I probably <laughs> could have played that one stronger of killing myself. I mean, I think that 
I always think people could play once stronger, right? right? That's always the thing of, and, and had that been a Shakespeare scene, right? Like we're, there would have been a heightened element to that that I think would have naturally brought that out in a more clear way. We would have been like guards waiting in, in Rome and, you know, getting ready to kill ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, you've, you've, I mean, you've done Harrow, Bullet Lounge. Yeah. You've done, you're, you're doing Second City Main Stage. Yeah. You've, you've done Improv Shakespeare. What, what, do the, what is a good scene? It doesn't matter. Or a good show, an improv show. What does all of those three have in common? If you had to boil down what makes a good improv show from everything you've done. Good, good interesting, rich relationships. You know, and usually two-person relationships. Uh, I think every good improv show has to have that characters that are, and it does, to me, it doesn't have to be funny. It, it almost always is, but it doesn't have to be. It just has to be interesting. You know? <coughs> and I think the best way to be interesting is to to tap into some vulnerability. You know, not be afraid to express what you want from somebody, even if you're someone who finds that hard in life. You know, then use the stage as a place that you can be like. So, to actually, state it is the character I want. I think uh, yes. I don't think there's ever anything wrong with stating it, and I think that's a mistake that we all make a lot. Is we think that oh, this all has to be played in su- subtext. I love it. I love it in scenes where it's like, oh God, I just have to say it. I'm in love with you. Oh God, I just have to say it. I you know whatever it is like. Um, and the thing is, today, improv scenes are shorter and shorter. So, you, I mean, if you, if you come out and say that, yeah. you're, I mean, you're really going to... Right. You guys want to say it sooner rather than later. I mean, I think the joy of um, smaller cast shows, sometimes you, you, you do get a little bit longer time to establish things. Um, you know, I do see a lot of short scenes now that I think, oh, man, we could have sat in that longer. Um, the, the last time I think I saw you, I, I don't. It was a couple. You were still dating Katie Rich yeah. at the I.O. and you were going off to a boat with her and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And you've broken up. And mm-hmm. she, we we had her on last week. Mm-hmm. She said that she, they would look out in the audience, and and they could then they would come backstage and go, "Oh, the guy in the beard in the front row is not laughing," or someone. Sti- I mean, do you do that too? I have a harder time doing that. I mean, I you can't help but do it a little bit. I just. I, the temptation is always there, but like I've, <laughs> I get busted. Like, I'll look, how do you get busted? Well, I'll look at somebody and then they'll make eye contact with me, and then they'll know that I'm looking at them, and that really creeps me out. Because and and and, and I talk about this with other people and in the cast, and they say, well, you know, what is the likelihood that they'll they'll make eye contact with you? And I think. Well, hi. I mean, at any given moment, there's like an average of maybe three people on stage performing. So the chances are, if you're like, the chances are they're looking at you. Um, and so I really, I, I don't, I bristle when I make eye contact with somebody because I know that I'm not supposed to be looking at them. I don't think. So in certain scenes where you have audience interaction or something. Right. But I always, I, I'll, I'll always, look, whenever I choose to look, then I, I, like that person's eyes will flick right into mine and I'll fuck. <laughs> Because I don't know what I don't know what then to do. Because you can't. I'm in character, so I can't acknowledge you. Um, and then, of course, that like maybe going deeper, the thing of uh, if I really make eye contact with them, I uh, I project disappointment onto them. <laughs> like I, I don't. They're not liking this. <laughs> Steve Walton, thank you so much thank for you, being here. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Well, there you have it. 
another episode of Improv Nerd, and I want to thank my guest, Steve Waltine from The Second City. I also want to thank the good people here at Stage 773 Chicago for hosting our show, and as always, our producer, Ben Caprero. We are now on PharrellAudio.com, so check out the other great podcasts they have there, like Call Chelsea Peretti, Conversations with Matt Dwyer, and Brain Warp, The Baby Eater. If you like what we're doing here, uh, please feel free to go to uh, PharrellAudio.com and donate, because most of the money, believe it or not, goes right back to the artists. So uh, help us out there if you can. And if you want to know more about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning classes, The Artist's Low Comedy, and my improv blog, go to JimmyCorain.com. And please, please, please like our Improv Nerd Facebook page. It, it helps my low self-esteem. All you have to do is go to Improv Nerd on Facebook and just like it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Improv Nerd. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 